and welcome to Yammer of the Gods, the podcast where we talk about writing about music. Uh, two books up for discussion in the November edition. First, Wes Loveday joins Tom to talk about The Big Midweek, Life Inside the Fall by Steve Hanley and Olivia Pekarski. And we'll also be looking at the story of Hull's legendary nightclub Spiders, Tales from Beyond the Web by Andy Rowe. <laughs> So, I'm joined by Wes, who was last with us back on April's podcast, talking about the status quo autobiography. What are you talking to us about today, Wes? I'm talking about another great British institution of rock. I'm talking about The Fall, and in particular the book The Big Midweek, Life Inside the Fall, by ex-Fall bassist Steve Hanley, co-written by Olivia Piekarski. So, Steve Hanley, he was in The Fall for... A long time, I understand. Nineteen years. A long time to be in the fall. Uh, yeah, just a long time in any <laughs> any description of time. Nineteen years is a long time, but to be in the fall is it's it's an incredibly long period of time. So, did Steve Hanley like being in the fall for nineteen years? It's a difficult question to answer uh, because Steve Hanley has got this kind of stoic kind of dry sense of humour that you never really can pin him down on anything um, He, I, th- I believe that he enjoyed playing music in the fall and he's very proud of the legacy of music that he created I don't believe that he enjoyed the 19 years of psychological torment that he experienced at the hands of Marquis e. Smith but that's just my opinion So um, presumably when Steve Hanley joined the band he wasn't uh expecting to be entering into 19 years of psychological torture. No, he he believed that he was joining his favourite band and all the youthful exuberance of being able to rub shoulders with people that you respect and you admire um, but soon after it becomes quite apparent that um, he's got more than he's bargained for by joining this band. So, <laughs> examples of psychological torture at the hands of Marquis Smith well it's it kind of it, there's two things that Marquis Smith likes to do one is to punish people for for stepping out of line and any minor infractions that he feels that people within the fall shouldn't do another is he will repeatedly sabotage himself and the rest of the band <laughs> for his own enjoyment and there's many, many examples of that. In terms of of punishments, for one, uh, there's an incident in a, in a nightclub in America. They're on a tour of America and Mark has gone back to his hotel room and the rest of the band have gone down to a disco and they're dancing around and, and Rock the Casbah by The Clash comes on the uh, in the disco and Marky e. Smith walks in and captures them all dancing to Rock the Casbah and he's so annoyed by this he lines them all up and slaps them all individually <laughs> over the face now Mark Smith has, has got a long standing hatred of The Clash and so he decides that if any member of his band dances to The Clash they deserve some corporal punishment he lines them up he lines them up yeah and, and they, they line up well yeah command. this is the weird thing about The Fall is, or the, the members of The Fall is that Marky e. Smith is a very slight short 
unintimidating person physically, yet they will withstand some of the most brutal and illogical abuses that I've ever seen anyone. They they just take it, and it's really bizarre. There's no reason. I mean, Steve Hanley is like a six foot three man of quite heavy build, and he repeatedly gets humiliated and abused by Marky Smith. Rock the Casbah has a very infectious groove. I would dance to Rock. I've I have danced to Rock the Casbah many a time. I've never been slapped over the face because of it by my dad or anything. It's never happened. <laughs> um, so alongside the punishments meted out for arbitrary infractions, then you mentioned um, Marquis Smith's penchant for self sabotage. Yeah, throughout the book, there'll be. A d- the band will build up a degree of momentum and, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be on the verge of some sort of commercial or critical breakthrough. And at that point, uh, Marky e. Smith will get some sort of, kind of just want to destroy this. He did, for whatever reason, he's unhappy with how things are sort of, the trajectory the band's going on, even if it's going in a very good, you know, upward trajectory. I mean, there's there's multiple examples of this happening. I mean, he sacks numerous managers. There's a particular manager called Trevor who's got the band running in a very professional manner. But then one day, Marky Smith sees him driving a pink BMW and he feels that he's ripping him off. So he so he decides that we need to get rid of Trevor because Trevor is obviously like creaming money off from you know the the millions that the fall are making on a yearly basis. Mm. Um, and there is actually later on in the book it does emerge that um, that Mark has taken Trevor to court, and there's a court case where he's suing Trevor for all, you know, the money that he's stolen from the fall, and the court case is actually thrown out of court because Marky Smith gets so paralytically drunk on in the while <laughs> whilst giving evidence that he contradicts his own testimony. So I mean that is that kind of crystallizes the the self sabotage thing of of. You know, there was no reason for it because I don't think owning a pink BMW is indicative of anything other than really bad taste. I have read interviews with Marky Smith where I remember him uh, complaining about the band Pavement, which seemed to be a recurring bugbear of Marky Smith. The idea that Pavement ripped off the full sound wholesale, which I've never really understood. And I remember reading interviews with Marky Smith referring to bands like Pavement all driving around in sports cars off of the back of his um, artistic inspiration. I feel like he has brought court cases against a lot of people that he just sees driving around in sports cars. But yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of other examples of just general arbitrary punishments that he just dictates towards members of his band. One of his favourite things to do, and it starts on the Slate CP, is to write lyrics about members of the band without, you know, abusive <laughs> lyrics. So on Slates, there's a song called A Middle Mass, which is about Matt Riley, and it talks about him having, like, cider mates... Mm. i.e. mates that drink cider which is a massive insult apparently oh right and also having him uh, soft mitts which means that he's not good at fighting which is debunked when Matt Riley punches him on the <laughs> young Australian tour and, and knocks him out 
but and then there's the song called a Lo- an older lover etc which is a, about you know take an older lover and at the time mark was going out with a Kay Carroll, who was the manager of The Fall, and she was 11 years his senior, and it's kind of... Right, because I've always felt that my appreciation of The Fall has been impeded a bit by, um, you know, the fact that the lyrics are so very oblique and resistant to conventional interpretation. No. I mean, it didn't occur to me that Slates is an EP... <laughs> designed despite Mark Riley. Yeah, to members of the public and fans of The Fall, the lyrics are oblique. If you're a member of The Fall, you realise that these lyrics are quite specific. And there is an, an example of this, is, um, Steve Hanley writes about it, is um, he just he just written a song called Glam Racket, which was on their album, uh, The Infotainment Scan. You know, they record the music, and um, Mark Smith comes over to him and he really congratulates... Steve Hanley on writing this great song and to reward him he gives him a bar of dairy milk chocolate and you know like Steve Hanley's happy to take it and he eats the chocolate and then Marky Smith goes in to, to sing and as he sings the opening words of the song Steve Hanley realises the song is about him and, and the lyrics to the song are stop eating that chocolate eat salad instead in fact you're a half wit from somewhere other. Why don't you bog off back to Xanadu in Ireland? And it might be a coincidence, but Steve Hanley is from Ireland. So I don't know if that was that last lyric was about him, but the chocolate one seems quite pointed. Yeah. You, I mean, don't tell someone to stop eating the chocolate if you've given them the chocolate. Yeah, there seems to be the irony here. He's given him the chocolate... Now he's preventing him from eating the chocolate. This sounds like some kind of textbook abusive relationship behaviour. I mean, it doesn't normally take place in a recording studio. Well, when I say psychological torment, that's what I mean. That is, you know, next time Marky Smith gives him a bar of chocolate, he's going to be thinking, "What's? Where does this lead?" Yeah. But but yeah, it's it's a it's a bizarre relationship between the members of the Fall, the, the not Marky Smith members of the Fall, and the rest of the band. There's this huge distance between them. I mean, throughout the book, Marky Smith is quite... A, he's, he's a figure that sort of kind of drifts in and out of the book. There's lots of parts of it where he's just not there because he's travelling in a completely different circle to the rest of the band. So, he, he travels apart from them. He's not on the same bus. He has different hotels. He stays with the cool people in town while they stay in, like, yeah. uh, hostels and things like that. There's... It is... It's a... It's a employer-employee relationship, not a traditional band setup at all. No. So, though, ironically, we would think of Marky Smith as being the heart and soul and lifeblood of the fall, he's not necessarily there no. for much of the falls. No, and I feel like this is what the, the book is. It's a sort of set in the story straight. Now, considering, as I say, these years of psychological torment, the book is very even-handed. It's not in any way... Um, dismissive or um, it's not uh, it's not a score settling book at all it's very even handed towards it's the portrayal of Marky Smith towards the end it does become apparent that Marky Smith is so far gone drugs alcohol wise that he's the reason the band falls apart I mean but for the most of the book there's no real animosity towards him for you know like setting himself apart from the fall and the rest of the band but the, the the internal structure of the band is completely bizarre to me. I mean, 
there's a few things that, that you know, like, for instance, the, the band royalties, uh, Maggie Smith controls all of them, and they have to drive to his house to collect a wage check each week. Um, as I say, with a separate, you know, hotels and travel arrangements. Yeah. There's a few, there's a couple of instances in the 80s where Steve Hanley leaves the band and Marky Smith tempts him back by giving him like a check for a thousand pounds or buys him a new really expensive base or pays for him and his wife to go on holiday. And you just think how much money was this band generating and how much were these people getting ripped off? Yeah. Well, um, in preparation for this podcast, I've been revisiting Renegade, The Lives and Tales of Marky oh, yeah. Smith, which is effectively a a ghost-written memoir of Marquis Smith's, yeah. you know, uh, musings. I was looking through the book for references to Steve Hanley. There are very few, actually, very few references to band members, and I wondered if yeah. there might be reasons for that. Anyway, um, Marquis Smith does say in his book, everyone in the fall got paid a decent wage, equal shares for everybody, despite the amount of hours I spent in the studio getting rid of Steve Hanley's mistakes. Well, that's another thing. Throughout the book, there's, a, there's an ongoing joke of Mark talking about how many hours a day he puts into the band, which escalates from 16 hours a day to 17 hours a day, up to 22 hours a day at one point. He was putting 22 hours a day into the fall. But there's a, there's a you know, occasionally it feels like people within the band become institutionalised and occasionally someone else will come into the orbit of the band and sort of say why why are you allowing this to happen there's a, a roadie called Colin who's kind of just looked into who's kind of privy to like the contracts and stuff and he asked Steve sort of like why you know you wrote these songs on this album Bricks wrote these songs on this album Craig wrote these songs on the album why is Marcus just getting 83% of the royalties of this album and they kind of meet it with just a shrug it's, it's, it's really strange I mean I feel like the only time they ever really reveal how much money they was making is a time in the early 90s where they talk about how the band are making about 250 grand a year, which even if you're getting, if he was only getting 15% of that or whatever, that was quite a, you know, a comfortable living for someone, you know, with no sort of airs and graces and kind of happy to live a non-luxurious lifestyle. They just don't question it. And it feels like if you do question it, then you're gone. Like, that's that's mm. the nature of the band. And I think everyone realises that. There's Craig Scanlon, who's probably the third or fourth longest serving member of um, of the fall. He, you know, he was there from when Steve Hanley joined up to uh, 1995, I believe. And he he gets a letter from Marky Smith dismissing him of the band for not being able to ma- maintain his own equipment. Just to say, <laughs> just to get a letter, and then he's out of the band. He's out of the. He's he's, he's gone. What what does that mean? He, he wasn't maintaining his equipment. <laughs> his equipment to the, to the correct standards that are accept, <laughs> acceptable to Marky Smith. Um, and yeah, that's you know, arbitrarily people can be kicked out of the band. It just it's, yeah. Well, it sounds like his behaviour becomes quite erratic. I mean, for the first three hundred and fifty four hundred pages of the book. Despite lots of potholes along the way, it is a story of a band ever, you know, it's a complete upward trajectory for the band. They go from playing, you know, local pubs and clubs in Manchester, 
through to Hex Induction Hour and becoming like a big indie band right up to where they kind of scrape the mainstream with mm. the Bricks era and they're, you know, they're getting songs in the charts up to the early 90s where the, the album The Infotainment Scam becomes a top 10 album. Really? Yeah, it was a number 9 album um, and then there is a precipitous drop off from there where the next album doesn't even reach the top 50. There's a few main reasons. I mean, it's not really switched upon the book, but I feel that maybe the Britpop boom, it's kind of in that sort of wheelhouse of the mid-90s and the fall just weren't... Mm. The bands around at that time were not referencing the fall. No. So some sort yeah. of important band. It was They were harkening back before the fall. So yeah. the fall... And also the fall were the darling of the music press and now you've got all these other bands filled the pages. Mm. A band like the fall just don't really yeah. count for much of I mean, it's point. perhaps akin to uh, the Falling Marcy's fortunes around the Britpop era. Well, yeah, I feel like also just because they're both kind of troubling, yes. problematic individuals. <laughs> Indeed. So it kind of felt like, yeah, they these people just came, just totally fell out of good favour with most of the music press. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the precipitous drop-off is remarkable. They go from, as I say, a top ten album to um, trying to open their own tapas bar <laughs> within three years, I believe. <laughs> why, why would the fall opening a tapas bar? Well, the story is that the band are struggling financially. Um, and Mark meets a gentleman called Spanish Tony in in the pub. And it's really weird how the career trajectory and the artistic trajectory and the commercial trajectory of the band is completely dictated by people that Marky Smith meets in pubs. <laughs> There's lots of incidents where Steve Hanley will turn up on the first day of recording or a tour and there'll be someone there who's travelling with them who will be Mark's new bodyguard <laughs> or the new keyboardist in the band or, you know, someone who's going to make stage props for us. And it's because Mark's met them and decided that these, this person's going to be great for the band. So, yeah, there's, they're trying to diversify themselves and try, try and create additional revenue streams for the band. So Mark calls um, Steve Hanley and the, the, the drummer of the fall at the time called Cy Wollstonecroft, who I believe was... He was involved with the Smiths at one point, yeah. and he was involved with the Stone Roses, and he's like this session drummer from Manchester at the time. And they called to this meeting in a in a in a bar in Altrincham because Altrincham is seen as somewhere where it's like a it's a it's a tapas black hole. There's no tapas <laughs> in Altrincham, so they decide that because Steve Hanley has got a background in catering, because Steve Hanley's dad owns a pie shop. Um, so Mark's decided that Steve can be the chef in the tapas bar because he's made a pie before. And so, yeah, the, the idea is they're going to open this tapas bar. And it's decided during this meeting we are going to open the Falls <laughs> tapas bar of Altrincham. But about a week later, um, they're at a band practice and, and Steve approaches Mark and says, so what's happening with the tapas bar? And... Mark tells him that he's decided to cut off any sort of business relationship with Spanish Tony because he saw him coming out of the betting shop um, and that you can't trust a man that made better way all the, the earnings. That... 
say he's a superstitious man, Marky. Well, yeah, he is. I mean, Marky Smith is a superstitious man. He um, obviously believes he's psychic. He talks multiple times about being psychic throughout the book. He's always, you know, he's obviously interested in the occult. There is a story of when they're on a, a US tour where they have to take a, I think it's a hundred mile diversion to go visit the grave of H.P. Lovecraft, and um, they, they they eventually find the graveyard and. Mark and uh, one of the uh, the roadies climbs over the fence and they, they spend about an hour or so trying to find the grave um, and they don't find the grave. So what with ill-fated plans to open tapas bars and all, it sounds as though the false fortunes were dwindling somewhat in the 1990s. Well, yeah, as I mentioned, there's a precipitous drop-off in their chart positions that seems to coincide with the Britpop boom, but it also coincides, probably less than coincidentally, with Marky Smith's newfound taste for amphetamines and massive amounts of alcohol. I mean, Marky Smith's someone who presumably was always... Consuming quantities of alcohol yeah. and amphetamines. And that is actually, it's quite interesting in the book that they really do gloss over the the large amounts of drug use that all the bad reasons. There's no real explicit mentions of anybody taking drugs, but it is kind of the subtext of the entire last sort of stretch of the book is Marky Smith takes an incredible <laughs> amount of drugs and the band is in a fucking free fall. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, they're in a financial mess the mid nineties, hence the tapas bar. Um, and Steve Hanley and Marky Smith go to visit their accountant, and I mean that kind of reveals what the the structure is of the band at that time is that Marky Smith is the leader and Steve Hanley is his sort of right hand man, and they go visit their um, they go visit their accountant and uh, they they. Uh, sit there and they're told that they have a 32 grand VAT bill that they have to pay off and Marky Smith takes off his jacket and reveals that on his arm in heavy biro it says HMS mental just on his arm I feel like this was part of some sort of previous night's activities and he's just been told that he's got to pay £32,000 back to the tax man he takes off his jacket you know, to raise the temperature of the room, and oh, oh God, oh my God, what is written on my arm? The act is somewhat undermined by the fact that he's he's got some nonsense on his. Skin. Well, yeah, I mean, to be to be fair to the accountants, they take it in good humour. Mm. They laugh, um, mm. but again, the band is completely dictated by Marky e. Smith's whims, and for whatever reason, during the nineties, he's sick. Marky e. Smith becomes sick of touring the, the regular venues that they they tour so he decides that he wants to take them on a tour of art venues which are much more structured gigs they need to be playing at nine o'clock on the dot which doesn't really fit with Marky Smith's normal sort of um, preparation for gigs and things like that so the tour starts in 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 South Shields and they have to be on at nine o'clock but Marky Smith decides that he needs to make a cup of tea for every single member of the fall and their entourage, which takes quite a long time, past the point of where they can start the gig and 
they they have to cancel the gig because not everyone's drank their cup of tea. Mm. And to go back to the idea of self-sabotaging. Behavior. Yeah, it's total self-sabotage. I mean, he he, he, he decides that he needs to make everybody a cup of tea and he says it's because you're all sick. And But none of them mm. are sick. None no. of them have got colds or anything, but he decides that he needs to make a cup of tea mm. for everyone else. But then they move on uh, to another gig at the Worthing Assembly Rooms, which has been described as the worst fall gig of all time, which is... I'm going to say that's at was at press time, because I imagine <laughs> there's been a gig in the, maybe in the last couple of weeks by the fall that might have been worse. Um <laughs> But yeah, there's a gig at the Worthing Assembly Rooms, um, and again, it's just the band is spiralling out of control. There's just in a sort of the, earlier in the in the book they talk about their their affinity with the film Spinal Tap, and obviously there's a famous um, scene where Spinal Tap uh, plays second figure fiddle to a to a puppet show, hmm. um, and at the Worthing Assembly Rooms they're not playing second fiddle. But their gig is scheduled between uh, shows by Sooty and Sweep and Paul Daniels. <laughs> so again, it's, it's a kind of indicator the band has fallen somewhat. Yeah. I mean, in real terms, Sooty and Sweep are, and Paul Daniels have got much higher profiles than most bands that play on the same circuit True. as The Fall. But to them, it feels like they've downgraded somewhat. They're not playing the same sort of part, you know, places that they normally play. Um, but yeah, at this gig in Worthing, uh, Maggie Smith decides that he, he wants to play the guitar. Now, this, he's not a person that generally plays the guitar in the fall, but he decided that he does want to play play the guitar. And so Steve Hanley sort of, he describes it as it was like buying a baby a rattle. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the relationship now is that Maggie Smith yeah. wants a guitar, so he needs, he's not going to play, so he needs to get him a guitar. So Steve Hanley goes to Argos, but it's closed. Um, and so, so he's, he's he's scratching around for guitar, and luckily or unluckily, the a friend of the promoter actually owns a guitar that was owned by Bo Diddley, which wow. obviously Marky Smith is a huge fan of Bo Diddley, and so the idea of Marky Smith gets to play Bo Diddley's guitar, you know, I'm sure Marky Smith would be very happy yeah. and respectful towards his guitar. Undoubtedly, reverential. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he would never abuse a guitar that was owned by one of his all-time so within 30 seconds of the gig Max smashes the guitar and the gig ends with a fan in the front row he ties Marky Smith's shoelaces together and Marky Smith falls over and that's the end of the tour (laughs) but that is the trajectory the band is on at that point yeah and so yeah it's just things go from 1993 riding on the crest of a wave top 10 album to falling over with your shoelaces tied together and th- that's a that's a thing as well that Steve Hanley sort of picks up on is the, the audience dynamic changes people aren't reverential to the fall anymore people are paying to see the fall because something stupid's going to happen mm. they're not there to, to enjoy the music they want they want Maggie to fall over or abuse someone or try and hit someone or something like that and it's yeah it's it, the last 50 pages of the book are really quite depressing and sad and got this very melancholic air that are just... Yeah, I mean, the idea that when Steve Hanley joined the band in the late 70s, um, early on in their career, he looked up to Marquis Smith 
um, as a as someone someone to admire. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems strange to imagine a time <laughs> when people look to Marky Smith. Yeah, I with mean, simple, pure admiration. Yeah, he he mentions about I think they're recording one of their later albums. Um, I don't think it's a light using syndrome. It's one of those you know. One of those ones we haven't heard. Yeah, the ones that people don't listen to. And, you know, he just he just thinks about when they were recording Dragnet and everyone had a thousand ideas and he says Mark has a, had a thousand lyrics to every song. Mm. And as I say, now he's seen a man who's literally got his shoelaces tied together. And it's, you know, that that's the thing. Is that towards the end of the book, it, it changes so quickly and it's really the last few chapters are just him realising that the band is just somewhere he doesn't want to be anymore. At one point he takes a job as a as a school caretaker and just he loves it. Like compared to being in the fall, you know, getting up at six o'clock in the morning and like, you know, fixing radiators and stuff is so much more So he's still finding ways to supplement his income from the Well fall. Yeah, the the book opens with a short chapter about him working so he's still a, he he was or at time of writing he was still a a school caretaker and he loves it. I mean it's again it's not you're not having to go visit H.P. Lovecraft's grave. <laughs> of course, he leaves the band in, what, 1998, so yeah. there's much more. There's, there's 20 years of the fall, 19 years well, yeah, of the fall, like, after he's left. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at it today, I, I think Steve Handley has been in the... He was in half of the length of the band as they exist now. Mm. But... But even there's been multiple interviews with Marky Smith now saying that Steve Handley is the sound of the fall, and it's a mm. huge regret to him that he ever, you know, kicked him out of the band, or he he wasn't kicked out of the band that he ever left the band. Well, in um, Renegade, Marky Smith says um, about Steve Handley. There's um, a, a brief thumbnail sketch of him, and Marky Smith says he was always very loyal. Always gave a good performance, good at organising things. I think he just got fed up. I think it was the uncertainty of it all. Like many, he found it hard to live like that. Eventually he said, I can't really cope anymore. I would question that from Steve Hanley's description of what happened. I mean, there was the final gig where they played in Brownies in New York in 1998, April of 1998. And I don't think... He was sick of it as much as he didn't like Marcus attacking him and hitting him. I feel like he didn't get tired of the band. I think he got tired of being abused by a drunken and abusive father figure that he hated. But yeah, I mean, I mean, well, there's, there's two, two sides. Two sides there's two story. sides to every story. But yeah, I mean, the book ends literally with him walking off the stage, walking out to the bar across the road from Brownies and looking back and seeing Marky Smith being handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. And that's the end of the book. And that is, a, you know, in terms of an image that sort of sums up yeah. where the band was at that point, that seems like a pretty strong and telling image. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, as a book that sort of completely explodes the myth of the fall then it's it's yeah it's it's not a book about Marky Smith's insane genius or Marky Smith's crazy or anything it's a book about 
a bunch of people being put into very small vans and driving all over the world and being miserable, which I think is a pretty good summation of what it's like to be in a touring band. Yeah, the emperor has no clothes and his shoelaces are tied together. Basically, yes. you're going to be talking to me about Spiders, Tales from Beyond the Web, the story of Hull's legendary nightclub by Andy Rowe. What attracted you to this particular tome? Well, it's actually a crowdfunded book, and I saw the um, the crowdfunder online and thought, oh, that sounds like a good project. Uh, it's worth a tenner of my money to see... Uh, the book put into production and I forgot about it and then it came through the letterbox about two weeks ago it was a nice surprise. So can you uh, tell us a little about Hull's legendary nightclub Spiders and why it has been commemorated in, in the form of a book? Well interestingly the book starts with um, an anecdote from the author about how people were always telling him about spiders way before he ever went there and when you say you're from Hull people always mention spiders and that's very much my experience I've got a few friends from Hull and like knew about spiders nightclub like way before I ever went there it is a one-of-a-kind alternative nightclub it was bought by its current owners in um, 1979 and it was just a sort of run-of-the-mill bar, really. And um, they decided gradually to turn it into something a bit different and it evolved slowly into uh, this alternative nightclub where people were into all different types of music, people into dressing up in all different types of ways, could go and have a, a nice time. And that is sort of one of the things that's legendary about spiders is the atmosphere and how everybody is really friendly and it's sort of not your usual nightclub. So, not having been to spiders myself, I imagine it's a kind of sanctuary for various misfits from Hull and other nearby northern towns. Yeah, it does seem to be. It is a, a very inclusive place. It's a place that's run almost as a family. That's a, sort of like a word that comes up again and again by people that look out for each other. Going to spiders is a bit of a rite of passage, If I think, if you're a slightly outsider teenager. And um, there's lots of stories in the book about um, people going there for the first time and feeling like they'd found their, their place to be. Mm, I feel that the issue around which we're skirting here is that of goths. Yeah, there are... A lot of goths, um, but not just a goth nightclub. Uh, it's called Spiders, and that would lead you to believe it was very gothy. And the inside has got like wrought iron spiders' webs and spiders painted on the walls and stuff. But it was never, li- never exclusively a goth club. I think it obviously attracted goths in the 80s because 
that was when it sort of started developing. But it's never been somewhere that exclusively plays goth music. I think it plays lots of lots of different alternative music. And it's a big rambling place with loads of different rooms with lots of stuff going on. And it's a place where subcultures meet, basically. It sounds great. You're really selling Spider's Nightclub in Hull to me. It is great. I Like... I've only been once, and it was amazing. And I just thought, oh, God, if I had been a teenager um, in Hull, you this see, would have been, like, the place I spent my whole life. So, one night in Spiders made you yearn to have been a, a teenager in Hull. <laughs> yeah, that's how good it was. Wow. Uh, you were a teenager in Hull, so I'm... I wasn't... In, uh, a teenager in Hull. I, I was a, a teenager in Grimsby. I've, I've been to Hull. I haven't ever really uh, participated in the nightlife or the, the cultural fabric of Hull. I've never been to Spiders. I mean, I have been to my fill of small-town rock nights, alternative nights, but I don't remember them ever having this magical je ne sais quoi, which seems to be the preserve of spiders. Yeah, um, and I should sort of talk about the book. It's a crowd-funded book full of lots of lovely pictures from over like the last 40 years, pretty much, nearly. Um, lots of um, anecdotes from people that went there, people that worked there, across like the whole of its history. And it's just a book filled with, like, love for this place. And I don't, I don't think I can emphasise enough <laughs> what a nice place it is. It is a place where they have bouncers on the door and a very strict door policy. And um, people talk about in the book about, like, people being turned away for looking a bit towny. Early on in the history, people were turned away for having visible tattoos because that, at the time, was... Uh, a sign of uh, not being alternative perversely and there is a very paternalistic atmosphere there's um there was a a lady that used to work upstairs so i'm sure she's been replaced but um the original granny spider uh, used to run a uh a small hatch for getting food and that's one of the the strange things about the place it's like it Everything is catered for. So when I went, I was having a dance and uh, and then I had some crumpets. <laughs> <laughs> like, God, they're selling crumpets. Like, it's exactly what I want right now mm. at like one o'clock in the morning. Mm. Um, and they're all also famous for their um, their own cocktails, which come under many peculiar guys is the uh, pan galactic gargle blaster the pink pugsley the green gremlin the brown bomber tizer and tarantula tizer and tarantula they're two separate names tizer if i remember is a bit like tizer but an alcoholic version of tizer <laughs> tarantula is a is a regular cocktail i think but um mm. it does has a twist yes so how much of your enjoyment of the time you went to Spiders are we attributing 
specifically to the crumpets. The crumpets were the icing on the cake for me. I mean, everything about it was great. It was just a a really nice atmosphere. You didn't feel in the way that you might do in some nightclubs that you weren't dressed right because anything was fine. Um, Everybody was friendly and smiley. There was lots of different music going on so you could just move around the building this massive crazy building that I never really got to grips with like rooms going off everywhere cheap booze nice booze um nice people what more do you want I feel it's a tragedy that you've never been back I know I know and also as a slightly older lady (laughs) it was nice not to feel like the weird old woman at a nightclub <laughs> so a diverse range of ages and presumably there are many people who've grown up with spiders who still are regulars though. yeah and um there's quite a few stories in this book of um people saying they met their partners there people who are now married to people that they met there somebody um is married to someone they met there and their daughter met their partner there. Um, and so it's a kind of a, an, inst- well, it's an institution. And it is known all over the country. It's got a reputation well deserved in my book. So the book, as well as having testimonies of people's memories of going to spiders, as you said, there's a large number of photographs in the book. These document changes in alternative fashions throughout the decades... Um, they're not chronological, but there are some great photos. There, you know, it just shows how many different people were going, how many sort of individual styles were going on. You've got your obligatory goss, but you've got your indie kids, rockabilly, psychabillies. There's, you know, people in Stone Roses t-shirts. <laughs> Yeah, it really isn't a place with a dress code as long as you um, don't turn up looking what we used to call towny. I don't know um, it, if that's still something people use these days. but Yeah, uh, towny was the, the word when I was growing up. And, you know, one of the ways in which they sort of maintained the nice atmosphere there was that there was sort of strict security and they would ban people for for behaviour um, that might be disruptive to other people. So in, including, like I think there were a lot of um, rough dancing and a few people got banned from being over-exuberant um, in dancing and having a good time is one thing, but sort of impacting on other people would be frowned upon. Yes, well, this sounds like the right way to, to run a nightclub to me. It's very unlikely that I will ever go to a nightclub again in my life, so I doubt I'll make it to Spiders, but I, I think I would enjoy to read this book. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. You probably have to Google how to find it. I know that they're selling it in the the Waterstones in Hull. Okay. You could make a pilgrimage to Hull, get yourself a copy, and then uh, go and have a Pangalactic Gargle Blaster. <laughs> With crumpets on the side. You 
you've been listening to Yammer of the Gods. Thanks to Wes Loveday. Thanks, Wes. Thanks to Tom Robinson. Yep. <laughs> and, th- and me. Thank you. 